The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. I fear him, I fear him not. I fear him, I fear him not. I fear him, I fear him not. That's a pretty random way to try and discover whether or not you should fear God or not. And the fear of God that I'm talking about here, we've talked about a, a certain fear of God, that reverential awe that we should have in front of him because of who he is and because of who we are. I'm not talking about the reverential awe so much in this passage. We're, we're talking about that uh, terror in the face of God's coming wrath and judgment that I happen to be under. And so, whether or not you fear God in that way, in that terror of God's judgment and wrath kind of way, really depends on the person you are and, listen, a very important decision that you have made. And in today's passage in Luke chapter 12, Luke 12, the first 12 verses is where we're going to be, uh, Jesus uh, turns from addressing the religious leaders for the past several weeks. We've been looking at that, and he's been going at them pretty hard. But our attention turns now as he, he begins to address his closest followers, his very own disciples, very tenderly, and um, giving them the assurance that in contrast to the religious leaders who should be in fear of God's wrath and judgment, they had no need to be afraid at all of those things. And I hope you'd agree that it's far better to not have to fear God's judgment and wrath, but rather to receive the promises and the assurance that God gives to those who are truly his disciples, those who love and follow him. And so the question is, uh, do you fear him or do you fear him not? Let's uh, turn to Luke 12. Let me read the first a few verses and um, then I'll pray for us. Luke 12. Uh, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let's pray together. Father, thank you um, again that we can get together in this place and get your word open in front of us. And I would I pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on this room and on these people. Please meet with us. Father, and open our minds, open our hearts to your word that we would uh, hear what you're saying and believe what you're saying and, Father, do what you say. And, God, may we uh, be encouraged and built up in our faith today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, so again, the last three weeks have been a, a little bit uh, of, of tough slogging through some very, I'm just going to put it this way, some very negative passages because, again, Jesus has been dealing rather harshly with these uh, religious leaders and uh, we come to chapter 12 and I was really hoping as we approach this that we were going to see a real kind of positive turn here and... Um, Yet there's still a considerable amount, I just read the passage for you, so you, you know there's still a considerable amount of kind of negativity right here in the passage that's still directed toward these religious leaders, while there is some encouragement that he is delivering to his disciples. And so um, where it comes to the negativity here, uh, these warning shots that even though he's addressing his disciples, he's still firing these warning shots across the bow of the religious leaders. I, if it's okay with you, I want to deal with that section rather briefly. We can't skip it because um, we don't skip anything here, correct? We're no skipping over the Bible, uh, no missing any verses, so they're right here. But we're going to deal with that rather briefly and then focus on what Jesus is saying to his followers because that's so encouraging. And I feel that right now, maybe it's just me, but I just need encouragement. And uh, maybe some of you need that too. And so let's get to this. When you resist the Lord, you should fear him. Uh, because um, he will win the power struggle. Between you and him, he's going to win the power struggle. He's going to win every power struggle that's out there. And first one, you notice that these amazing crowds, these, they're crushing crowds, they're trampling one another. Verse 1, it says, uh, in the meantime, so many thousands of the people had gathered together, trampling one another. And, he, and then he, he talks to his disciples. Now, these crowds were gathering because of the popularity of Jesus. His message was spreading. People were talking about his miracles. People were benefiting from having come into the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus has this kind of rising popularity. And um, everything that he's saying is a challenge to the religious establishment, to the leaders that keep dogging him the entire way. And notice what verse 1 continues to say. He says this to them, to the, to the disciples. Beware the leaven or the influence of the Pharisees, which is actually hypocrisy. 
Hypocrisy, not the, the, what's on the outside, not the same as the inside. And Jesus had made this point over and over again that inside they were dead, even though they were giving off this impression of being very religious and devoted to God, they were not. And so, um, again, a warning, harsh words for the religious leaders. All these crowds gathering to hear Jesus every time he challenges the religious leaders with every word he says, they're liking him more and more. And, and the religious leaders feel threatened by that. They, they see everything that they've built up in terms of an institution, they see that crumbling right before their eyes with every word that Jesus speaks. And they're, they're sideways because of Jesus here. Because their influence is actually lessening. It's a power struggle. It's one that they, we know, they would eventually lose. Because God's going to win every power struggle. And some of you, even as you come to this place this morning, to sit under the teaching of God's word, to worship him, you're in a power struggle with God right now. He's taught you some things. He's told you some things. There's things that you have heard from God's word and, and you understand them, you know them, but you've just refused to do them. You don't want to believe his word or do his word. You don't want to surrender your life. There's some sin issue in your life that you kind of like and you don't want to give up. It's a power struggle. Or maybe you've heard the gospel repeatedly and you're sitting here and you know that you should embrace Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, but you won't do it. You're in a power struggle with him. You don't want to follow him. Maybe you're just making up your own belief system. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to think this thing. I'm going to create something for me that makes me comfortable. You're in a power struggle with God, doing things your own way, but you're, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. The day is coming when that's going to be clear to you. Because he's going to win the power struggle between you and him. A day is coming, Philippians 2.10 says, a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not, not every believing knee will bow and every believing tongue will confess. Every knee will bow, believer and unbeliever. Every tongue will confess, believer and unbeliever. All will be brought before the Lord. All will be judged. Some will be spoken for by the Lord Jesus Christ and they will be ushered into eternity with him forever. But every single person, even those who will be cast far from the presence of God, separated from him for all eternity, everyone will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee will bow and so much better that you would do it now, that you would surrender to him now or be crushed by him then. Give up the power struggle. And then you should also fear him because um, he knows your motives. How many would agree that in this power struggle that God has, is having with us or that we're having with God, how many would agree that God has an unfair advantage? Would you agree with that? 
He, because here's the thing, while we're called to have the mind of Christ, that's just something we're growing in and we certainly don't know all the things that God knows, but he knows everything. He, he knows everything. He knows every thought and all our motives and everything we do. He knows it all. And that gives him this information. Everything about us is exposed. And things that you think are hidden are not hidden to God. Secrets that you think you have, he knows. Lies that you have told that you think you got away with, he knows about it. Motives that you think no one knows about, he knows about. He knows it all. Look at verses two and three. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Now, this, this applies, by the way, to these things we want to keep hidden, okay? We're trying to keep those lies secret. We're trying to keep our motives to ourselves. I, I, I want this to be a secret still. It applies to that for sure, but then it, it also applies to the things that God wants to make known that are good things, like the gospel. Like a lot of people don't know that yet. And it, it's a little bit, you know, in this, in this time when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, there's still a lot of people didn't know about the kingdom of God. And those things are also going to be known. God's going to make everything known. People who are gospel deniers will see that the gospel was true. It's all going to come to light. Positive and negative things, it's all going to come to light. It's all going to be shouted from the housetops. You're not getting away with anything, and God is going to make everything known. Stop thinking that you can keep these things secret and fear God. Turn away from impure motives and confess the sinful pursuits of self that are in your life. And beyond the winning, and God will win, and the knowing, and God already knows, Here's the final negative thing we need to say here. Um, he will send you to hell. If you resist him, he will send you to hell. Verses four and five. Again, he's talking to his disciples. He's, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Um, we need to value, I want to say this in the right way, but we need to value our physical bodies, our temporal life here. We need to value that a little less than we do. We put so much value on this and we have such a survivor kind of mindset that, and, and we get trapped into this thinking that this is all there is, even though we might give lip service to the idea of heaven. We're investing so much in this life and we've overvalued it. And you can see that in what Jesus says right here. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. If they've killed you, that's it. They would know their play. They have no more cards to play. That's not nearly, your physical body, your physical life is not nearly, not even close to the most valuable thing you have. And yet some of us treat it as if it really is. I mean, I got to think about Esther. You remember the story of Esther in the Old Testament, right? 
And um, she was part of the harem of the king. And um, through a series of really stupid events, crazy things that took place, all of the Jewish people in the entire empire were under the condemnation of death. They were all going to be executed on a certain date. And it really looked like Esther was the only one who was in a position who could kind of change the king's mind. But the, the law back then was that, that no one could come into the king's presence without the king saying they could. And you couldn't just request it. And she knew that she had to go into the king's presence anyway and to make her request for him to reconsider the execution order. And she said, just before she goes in, she's telling the people, I'm going to go in and talk to him. And she says, do you remember this line? It's one of the greatest ones in all the scripture. If I perish, I perish. She didn't value her earthly life so much that she was willing to try and preserve that at all costs. If I perish, I perish. Let me live for something greater. You've heard the expression, maybe, there are worse things than death. And that's, that's applying right here. The Apostle Paul kind of said it this way in Philippians 2, uh, 121, uh, to live is Christ, to die is... Oh, come on, say it with more energy with me. You're not believing me right now. To live is Christ, to die is... Do you believe it? Do you believe it? To live is Christ, to die is, it's gain. The psalmist said it this way, it's repeated in Hebrews. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Answer, nothing. You can, you can take this body, but that's not the most important part of who I am. It's just temporal. I'm going somewhere awesome if you take this body. What Jesus wants us to see is that these earthly authorities, they might threaten and even take our lives. That was certainly the pressing issue for these disciples. But, you know, what's the big deal with that? So you should have no fear of them. He's, he's telling them all of that because then, he's, then he says, in contrast to that, if you don't have Jesus, if you don't, follow him, love him, if your sins haven't been forgiven by him, then you come under the condemnation, not of some, some petty religious leaders that can just take your physical life, but you come under the condemnation of a holy God who not only can kill the physical, but after having killed you physically, he can condemn you to a Christless eternity in hell. That's who you should fear, that God. Fear that. All right, done with the negativity, amen? Done with the negativity. All right, we're gonna move on. Let's get to something good. When you follow the Lord, you should not fear him because, I mean, he values you greatly. You know, I was thinking as I was working on this that um, I think a lot of people struggle with this. And I think us coming together here today, some of us here really need to hear about our value and how God sees us. That, that this message isn't just some general message that we're throwing out there that we could all learn from. There are some specific people in the room right now who need to hear how much God values them. 
And so Jesus tells this illustration, verses um, 6 and 7, a couple of illustrations. He said, are not, um, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? I mean, he starts by saying that sparrows are not worth very much. You get a bunch of them, a couple of pennies, you can have them. Birds are kind of, I mean, I don't know how you feel about birds, but, um, and I don't really have an opinion on sparrows. I have an opinion on um, seagulls in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> True or false, they're a nuisance. Those seagulls in the Walmart parking lot are like a gang, and, and no one can do anything about them. Uh, but we're not talking about seagulls here, and I'm glad Jesus didn't use seagulls as the illustration here, but sparrows, five sparrows, two pennies, not, not worth very much. And yet, look, look, what, look what he continues to say here. Keep that in mind. Not one of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. In other words, even though we consider the sparrow to be such an insignificant little part of creation, something we hardly give any thought to whatsoever, God has an accounting of every sparrow on the planet. That's awesome. That, that he would put that kind of value on a sparrow. Not one of them is forgotten by God. And he goes on to say, verse 7, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now I get that that illustration, only some people in the room can understand that. <laughs> You're way ahead of me again. Um, some of you who are um, baldish members of our Harvest family. Um, to help you understand the scriptures better today, I've slightly altered, I think, the scriptures here without violating the sense. Um, I could read it this way. Uh, the hairs of your head were all numbered when you had hairs. <laughs> and maybe that'll help you understand it. You're welcome. Brian, <laughs> um, fear not, you are of much more value than many sparrows. But if God cares about these insignificant little things like sparrows and the hair, and the number that you have, he cares for you, he values you in a way that's almost unimaginable. And, and the struggle is real for so many in this area. Because so many things can happen to us and people can say things that begin to diminish our value. Your marriage fails and somehow it's projected on you by others or you project it on yourself. That somehow in, in that happening, your value goes down. Or you're a single adult and you can't find that person that you want to be with and, and you're still single and it's year after year and you think that somehow your value is not there and it's diminished by your singleness. You lose your job. This is so true for men. You lose your job or you've been out of work for so long or you're underemployed or you're not doing the thing you really want to do and you feel like your value is attached to that. Or you're a student and everyone else seems to be excelling and doing so well and it's a struggle for you to just even make it through and get decent marks. And because we put a value of grades on those classes, you think your value is attached to that. Maybe you have few friends. Maybe you're 
spending Friday nights alone, you'd like to be out with somebody. Maybe you have physical challenges that limit you. Maybe you're young and people disregard you. Or maybe you're old and you're overlooked. And you feel like your value is diminished. Maybe you battle depression or some other mental illness and that's affecting your value. Maybe you're overweight. Maybe, maybe you've worked hard but success has eluded you. Maybe it's been one crushing trial after another, a long succession of heartaches in your life, and you're beginning to think that your value's attached to that and that there's something wrong with you. And your value has been diminished, listen, in your own eyes. Because the only criteria that we should measure ourselves by, and there's so much, so much wrong criteria that we use. Our values very often, can I give you a few of these things, wrong criteria, so often our value is measured by what people say to us or how people treat us. Often our value is measured by our success or our failures. Or our value is, is measured by ourselves and we're so hard on ourselves. Or maybe we've had what we thought were trusted leaders in our lives who have said things to us that have crushed us and hurt us and diminished our value. Or maybe those circumstances have just led us to believe we're not worth very much. There's only one criteria, one, one measure of your value. And that is whether or not you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are of much greater value in the eyes of God the Father. And you should see how much God loves and cherishes you. Back in Luke 10, just a couple of chapters before, Jesus told us that as the followers of Christ, our names are inscribed in heaven. We belong there. And God values us enough to have sent his son for us, to rescue us, to get our names inscribed in heaven. And the haters and the complainers and the ones who think they're superior to you can take a seat. Because God has told you your value and you don't fear anyone or anything because he treasures you. He values you greatly and secondly, notice this, he welcomes you. Verses eight and nine and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, everyone who, to acknowledge Jesus before men is to confess that he is the Lord and Savior of your life. Uh, salvation comes in part because we confess with our mouths that we are the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has saved us. And if you have done that, if you've acknowledged Jesus before men, then God will acknowledge you, notice the verse continues, 
I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, Jesus, also will acknowledge before the angels of God, the very throne room of God, before the throngs of people who are part of his family, before the holy angels who are in front of the throne of God, Jesus Christ will in that moment say your name. He's mine. She belongs to me. They're part of the family. This is their place. I've welcomed them in. I've cleansed them by the, by the blood that was shed at the cross. And when we see this, this acknowledgement, we should have a sense of deep, well, a sense that we belong, that, that God's welcomed us in. He continues, continues in verse 9, kind of the negative side of it, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the holy angels of God. And so I've been adopted into his family. You've been received. It's our identification, our sense of, of being, in the right sense of this, owned by God. We're in his family. And I love Ephesians 2.13 um, but now in Christ Jesus, uh, those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were once alienated from God. You weren't part of the family. You were on the outside looking in. You were not being welcomed in. But then by the blood of Jesus Christ, he welcomed you into the family and you were brought near to the Lord. And it's so obvious if you have that and you sense this welcoming and you can think back to a time when you didn't have that when there was dissonance in your life and you felt like you didn't fit and where do I belong and I'm searching for purpose and who exactly am I again? How do I fit into this world? The failure to find significance and fulfillment is because we don't belong here. We are aliens in this place. And when we go to find some satisfaction and fulfillment in this world, and then when we get what we think we wanted, and then we find out it doesn't fill the emptiness, it's not enough for us, it never satisfies, it's because it's not supposed to. That's something only Jesus can fulfill. C.S. Lewis said it, said it well here, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Exactly. Exactly. We are made for another world, and Jesus welcomes us into that world in his name to be part of his family. He values you greatly. He welcomes you in, and to get there, he forgives you. Such an encouragement to know this. I mean, at the time that Jesus was speaking, there were many who were skeptical and investigating and questioning Jesus, some speaking of him certainly in careless ways and not thinking very much of him. Others, genuine inquirers trying to figure this out, but not quite there. A lot of ignorance concerning Jesus and the way they sometimes treated him. And then, so Jesus says this in verse 10, and this is definitely one of those harder verses in the scripture to understand, specifically the latter part of it. But verse 10, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man 
will be forgiven. Anyone who speaks ill of Jesus. And you can kind of put that right into the context of where he was speaking and when he was speaking and to whom he was speaking. In that context, as people were still struggling to figure out who the Son of Man was, who the Messiah was, who Jesus was, that was going to be forgiven of them. But everything would change in the moment that he... uh, gave his life on the cross, was resurrected to new life, ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And and while he was there, Jesus said, before he left this earth and went to the right hand of the throne of God, he said, I'm going to send you. Who did he send us? He sent us the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And that became like a game changer in that moment for how God is perceiving the rejection of Jesus. It's like in that first period of time, there was a, you know, kind of a grace period with Jesus right in front of them for everybody to figure it out. But once the Holy Spirit came and started teaching and convicting and convincing us of these things in the hearing of the gospel, things would change. And here we come to this really hard part of verse 10, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the big question in a lot of believers' minds always is this. Can I commit that sin as a believer? Can I commit that sin and be on the outside of forgiveness and that somehow I'd miss out? And uh, the short answer to that is no, you can't. Not if you're a true believer of Jesus Christ. Someone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit takes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, they find out about it, and then they trample it. Jesus says that's not going to be forgiven. No one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is getting, to heaven, getting into heaven because it is the sin of resisting God's promptings and his work. It's unforgivable in the sense that it is a refusal to allow the Holy Spirit to have his work in their life, specifically the work of regeneration, the work of, of indwelling, the work of sealing all necessary for our salvation. That's what's unforgivable in the simplest terms. I could put it this way. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, I don't want to be saved, I'm not going to be saved, I'm not following Jesus, period. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And um, Walter Liefeld, a commentator, said this, there's no remedy for absolute and complete denial of the one holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No remedy for that. But if you've trusted Christ, even though you may have rejected him for years, even if your sins are deep and disgusting, and even if you think they're unforgivable, they're not. He offers you the cleansing that comes from his shed blood on the cross. And Romans 8, 1 becomes a declaration from every person who knows Jesus. There is a therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation if you are in Christ. He values you, he welcomes you, he forgives you, and then finally this, he indwells and empowers you. Again, it had been tough on the disciples and they were thinking a lot about the pressure that was on them in following Jesus. They were wondering if being one of his disciples was entirely too risky. They felt threatened And Jesus made it clear, by the way, that they were um, justified in feeling that way. Look at verses 11 and 12. And uh, when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, and the authorities. Is that the way it reads in your Bible? Uh, And and when? Do you see the word when there? 
Is that what it reads? Or does that, do any translations have if, if they bring you before? Any, it's when. It's not optional. It's going to happen for them. These disciples who were listening to Jesus, they would all give their life one way or another for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That sacrifice would be required of each one of them. When they bring you before these authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. If you're nervous about this, you don't need to be. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus wanted to assure them that having not rejected but instead embraced the Holy Spirit's work in their life, they would have all they need exactly when they needed it in order to endure all suffering because the Holy Spirit was actually with them, indwelling them, in them, and giving them the power to say and do exactly what they needed to say and do. In the Holy Spirit, I, I don't have a sense that very many of us are gonna be asked to give our lives in this way as the disciples had to but we, we no less face trials and difficulties and pressures in our lives. And if you are in Christ, what God wants to tell you right now and assure you of and encourage you with is that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you and he empowers you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter what great trial you're facing right now, he's with you. And he's giving you the power to endure that. Whatever you're facing He's holding you. He values you. He welcomes you. He forgives you. He indwells you. And he empowers you. If you love and follow Jesus, there is no need to be in fear. And I was thinking back to those earlier verses in our passage about God knowing everything. And I find it so comforting that he knows everything. And when you love Jesus, even if you doubt, even if you fail, even if there's struggles, even if you're questioning things right now, if you're genuinely in him, there's such an assurance in knowing that he knows your heart. Because when you're failing, you can have this sense that maybe God doesn't know, but he does. I was thinking about the story of Peter who had denied Jesus three times, one of the most epic failures of a Christ follower. And after Jesus had died, was resurrected, and ascend, uh, before he ascended, he and Peter were having this conversation, and Jesus' whole intent was to restore Peter, to bring him to a good place, help him process those denials so that he could kind of put them behind him and be the leader that Jesus needed him to be. So you remember the conversation and, and Jesus asked him three times, remember the question? Jesus asked him, do you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? By the third time, Peter, you get a sense like he was a little frustrated by it. Maybe even a little hurt. And, Jesus, and, and Peter said this to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And in the midst of our epic failures and, and our denials of Jesus and, and the doubts that we have and the struggles. We can 
You know everything. And you know it's hard right now and you know I'm struggling. But you also know I love you. That's an awesome thing, isn't it? That he knows us that well. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.